Welcome, everybody. This is Joe Kim from the Deconstructor Fun Podcast. We have a really fantastic podcast for you today. I have to say, without doubt, one of the best podcasts I've ever recorded. And it's really about how do you scale a games company sort of after that initial round of financing as young companies start to grow and scale? What are the biggest mistakes? How do you address things like culture, hiring processes, and what do you do with some of these key issues and how do you address them? We have three fantastic speakers. I have watched and listened to this five times, taken a lot of notes and actually implemented new processes and practices at my own company based upon this conversation. So you're not going to want to miss out on this podcast. But we'll be right back with this discussion right after this commercial message. So definitely stay tuned. Really at Jam City, we want to treat the players first and foremost. We really care about their experiences. That comes down to ad quality and what type of ads they're seeing. We want to make sure that the performance is there. Waterfall management does take a lot of time. The big drawback is the back and forth with networks, obviously the uh, analysis behind it, and not always is the juice worth the squeeze, so to speak. That was Kyle. Kyle is the Senior Director of Ad Monetization from Jam City, and he uses IronSource's platform to automate his monetization and grow game revenue. That is time that is really maximized and could theoretically be a 50 to 100% to 2x increase in overall ad revenue. Theoretically, level play just automates a lot of that. That is a huge time sink for a lot of our teams. Want to grow like Jam City? Get the SDK on ironslc.com. That's ironslc.com. We all know it. Mobile marketing is going through a paradigm shift. With the industry moving towards a more aggregate way of measuring marketing efforts, marketers' ability to measure and understand the impact of their marketing investments is further curtailed. AppsFlyer, though, is not sitting on the sidelines. The company has set a goal to help their customers and the entire mobile ecosystem to successfully navigate the new era of mobile marketing. And that's where AppsFlyer's latest product, the incrementality solution, comes to play. It's a product that truly empowers marketers to gain a better understanding of the real value that their marketing efforts hold. AppsFlyer's incrementality solution is built around remarketing. It simplifies the process of designing, executing, and analyzing incremental lift tests at scale, which previously was something that only the biggest players on the market were able to do. With, with incrementality, marketers can focus on the end goal of their test without actually having to worry about the heavy lifting that comes with it. To learn more about incrementality and to read the success stories from publishers like Kabam, I suggest that you head out to appsflyers.com. Welcome everybody. Today we're here to talk about the biggest challenges and mistakes early stage companies have in order to scale their companies and achieve success. So if starting the company and securing that initial funding is day zero, then how do companies figure out this next stage after you secure that initial funding? Something that guys like Jeff Bezos calls day one. And so some of the things we'll talk about today are things like Biggest mistakes, challenges, issues founders of new game companies will need to keep in mind in terms of specific challenges faced by early stage companies. What are approaches to winning? We'll also talk about kind of this difference between creative versus data-driven companies. And finally, how do you prevent yourself as you scale and get bigger to prevent this kind of day two issue? How do you keep lean and how do you keep 
all the benefits of being kind of a lean and smaller company. And so joining us today to talk about these issues, we have first Christian Sagerstrahl, who was co-founder of Blue Mobile, CEO of Playfish, acquired by EA, was a seed investor in Supercell, was also senior exec at EA, and now is the CEO of Super Evil Megacorp, and they will soon launch their new MOBA shooter called Catalyst Black. Welcome, Christian. We also have Travis Boatman. Travis has held senior leadership positions at a bunch of major gaming and mobile gaming companies, including Mattel, Jamdat, EA, and Zynga. And most recently, Travis founded Carbonated Inc., a mobile and PC game studio located in Southern California. Also, you guys have been in the news for raising a lot of money recently from A16Z and others. And finally, we have Gigi Levy-Weiss. Gigi has been a senior executive investor in like a billion companies, so many companies. I was scrolling down your LinkedIn and it's like, when does this stop? It doesn't stop. <laughs> you know, it's, it's hard to get all of the things that you've invested in and started, you know, even with like a 4K monitor. So, but Gigi, I think a couple of companies that come to mind are Playtica and Plarium. So you were involved in those companies, but I think in terms of your most recent experience, you are a general partner at one of the most exciting, in my opinion, one of the most exciting venture capital firms, NFX. Welcome, Gigi. Thank you. All right. So maybe we could just start and jump right in and start with mistakes. So kind of when starting out, let's say you started your company, you got that initial funding. And so as you're starting to scale, what are some of the big mistakes that people make as they start from that kind of initial co-founder group and starting to scale out? Maybe starting with you, Christian? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, there's obviously a thousand mistakes that you can make. I think one of the biggest ones is probably simply falling in love with product. I think a lot of the time when you end up fundraising, you typically fundraise off the back of an initial product idea or an initial, hey, there's an opportunity to make a combine the match three and the RPG and the MMO category into the, you know, a wild new type of game. That's it's a hybrid. It's a hybrid, big. It's a hybrid. It's a hybrid. Exactly it's a hybrid. that. You know, it has the depth and it has the approachability, right? It's all top right. Uh, and the point is that you, because you get so used to selling the idea, ultimately you know nothing about that idea until you market tested it, until you've like started building it, until you start getting some data. And it's really important that even though you've sold it as part of your fundraising process, the second the money is in the bank, take two steps back and know that almost definitely, like in 90% of cases for game companies, their first product will fail. It will fail for a hundred different reasons. It'll fail because maybe the idea, maybe just the execution because the team is new and everything is new about it. So going into it, knowing that your first product will probably fail and knowing that you will learn a lot and that you need to get it out as quickly as possible and that you then need to be really hard-nosed about killing it as quickly as possible. And that frankly is, regardless if you're an incredibly right-brained creative-led company or an incredibly left-brained data-led company, it's equally true. Do not fall in love with product, fall in love with building a really successful studio by shipping and learning as quickly as possible. Yeah, that is so true. There was the period in my life where I thought that every game company should kill their first product before they started. Raise money, tell your investors you killed the product, and then you can start. <laughs> no, there is something in that. There is something in that because it is so easy. And in particular, people who've been around for a while and who've killed a lot of product will maybe have that instinct a bit more. But usually a new team is so excited about the product that they want to build. And it's very hard not to get carried away by that. Yeah. And Travis, you... Carbonate has been around for a while and you kind of raised the second tranche of money. Have you seen any mistakes or are you running into anything right now as you're starting to deploy that capital? 
Yeah, I think I think and you brought up a good point about the, the kinds of companies. I sort of have three in my head about video games. I said they're sort of engineering-led companies, they're sort of business-led companies, and they're sort of creative-led companies. And I think knowing who your founders are and knowing how that culture is led from the top down and sort of what kind of company you really are, I think is, is super important. Um, I think for us, when we first started, we, we had never really worked together as a leadership team. We'd all been sort of senior execs who've done lots of stuff in the industry for a long time but we never actually worked together. And I think we had some really wise advice early on. We first founded the company, where we were very, you know, sort of excited and fired up to just, we're gonna take over the world. And, and we got some good advice from folks who just said, hey, you guys have never worked together though. Spend some time getting to know each other, understand your culture, culture's led from the top down. So you need to understand how you guys all work because that's ultimately how the company will, will, be, will be built from a cultural standpoint. Uh, and so I think, you know, for us, it worked really well. I've, you know, sort of been fortunate to see it inside a lot of other companies. Uh, where I've seen that not go so well. So it's, it was a good wake up call and reminder for us that uh, you're kind of who your core founders are and really knowing yourself as a company and what kind of culture that's gonna lead based on, on your founding team was, was super good advice. Um, the second thing I think we, we uh, a mistake that we made was when we were when we were first growing, we wanted to operate as a, as a non-raised entity. We wanted to do work for higher work and service work to get to know each other as a team and really refine our thesis. We wanted some time to refine our thesis. We sort of thought we knew we were right, but we wanted to be sure. Uh, maybe that's a little conservative of us, but but we've been around a long time. And for what what, what Kristen Gee said, you know, a lot of mistakes are made and you learn those throughout the industry. So uh, we really wanted to take time to kind of refine our thesis. But one of the mistakes we made is in part of that work for hire, we took over a small team from another games company um, and we got to see firsthand how uh, shifts in culture and different types of uh, staff collide with each other. And uh, that was a real wake up call to sort of take that uh, staffing and hiring uh, of folks real seriously. So I could go through a whole long talk about what that looks like when you acquire and smash two cultures together. We ended up working through it and everything's great now, but it was definitely a, a year or so of, of pain of trying to deal with two different cultures and how they work together. Right. Uh, one thing I'll add is, you know, over my years at EA and Jamdat, we did acquire lots of companies, but we mostly acquired very successful companies who had really, really strong, healthy cultures. Uh, right. But when you when you, you merge or or partner with a company that's in distress, you typically get uh, maybe not the best culture and working through that's oftentimes pretty tricky. Yeah, I can add a few things. So I think that, you know, when, when general uh, in every industry, but uh, predominantly in the game industry, it's always true is that uh, the biggest mistake is being slow. And being yeah, slow basically is about uh, deciding to build something too big at the beginning. It takes you months to build it until you ship it. And so, you know, you waste, you know, half your money or whatever, and everybody's committed to it. You put it out, it doesn't work, it kills you. So it's not building something small enough. It's not being focused enough. And that all ties back into the kind of speed and the culture of iteration and the culture of putting out something really small, the first playable that's kind of really small and watching the numbers and seeing that it's right. And if it's not right, iterating on it. And, and that's the main thing that, that I see game companies make mistakes. I see people that are raising money, raising a few millions, and now they're taking a year and a half to build something. Why would you ever want to take a year and a half of your life and build something that you don't know if it's going to work? So that, that's one thing. The flip side of it, which is the other mistake, is that I see very fast teams give up on quality when hiring people. And so the only place where we allow for slowness in a way is in hiring. Because at the end of the day, every person of your initial team that you're hiring that is not the best person, that's not just impacting that one person. You know, there's the saying that only A people, only A players can recruit A players, the Bs recruit Cs and Ds. And so if you end up in your first team uh, hiring people that are not the best, you're basically in each one of their positions you're dictating that everything below them is gonna be mediocre at best in your company. 
And so on these first hires, that's the only place where I allow for slowness because I want to make sure that you're getting the right people. So this is this tough balance between being really super fast and building something really small and iterative and getting data soon and deciding what to do. But at the same time, when it comes to recruiting people, find the right people that have the right DNA that you that are you know excellent at what they do. That's the kind of the, the area where I see the most mistakes. And, and this is always true in every company. It's super true in games company because it's so much tougher. I mean, let's be frank. The game industry is the place where you can create the biggest successes in no time, more than any other industry. The right. flip side of it is it's the toughest industry always, but right now even more than ever to succeed in because there's so many moving parts. And, and that's why starting a games company is so much tougher, I think, than almost any other company. Yeah, I'd actually really violently agree with those points if I just get to that a bit. So I, and actually the thing that I most, in some ways, I mean, I'm obviously I run companies, but I also um, do a little bit of seed investments, nothing quite like Gigi, but even then it's really interesting. Like the things that situations I think are the scariest is when startups raise a little bit of money, they get to a prototype level. They haven't yet shipped anything and then they raise a lot of money because that gives them the time to be super slow, <laughs> like the excuse to be super slow to actually ship. And I think it's it's really like one of the, the mistakes, if you like, or the learnings that have like burnt themselves deepest into my brain through, through my career has really been that you almost need that near death come to Jesus moment, if you like, in your company trajectory to really align the team. Because t- people get into a game startup for lots of different reasons, you know, for creative reasons, for technical, like pushing the boundaries, doing all sorts of exciting things. But until it really hits you that we are about to run out of cash, if we don't, you know, if we do not f- channel all of our talent to shipping fast, learning and making something commercially successful, like that moment needs to happen. And even in the most successful companies like Supercell, that, you know, they had that moment with their very first game, Gunshine. Yeah. And like for us, the Super Evil Megacorp, it took us way, way, way too long to have that moment. But ultimately, we ended up having that moment. And through there, forging a team that is laser focused on channeling some really unique talent to hopefully some really unique and commercially uh, successful uh, directions in the, in, in the future. But I think that that sort of taking away that layer of sort of arrogance, if you like, from a team is incredibly important really early on. No matter how, what it was that you sold originally, you need to almost run out of cash to feel like, you know, this is super serious, like we've got to ship now, now, now. The other piece that I would say, I agree with the hiring point, but the, the, the complicated thing about shipping fast though today, and which you, you have some teams that are really reasonably saying, look, if we want to compete on this platform, on this, in this genre, it just takes 18 months to make the game. You can't make it quicker. And I think the really hard thing is how do you find that middle way where you, on the one hand, retain that creative sort of depth of vision and the sort of staying true to making something that truly stands out in the marketplace. You sort of have to do it while at the same time testing it really, really, really early. Like how do you get the first iteration going so fast that you fail quickly? And I think that's a really hard path. I think it's a really hard path for creative-led companies because they go like, there's no way we can ship this early, super like super quick version. There's no way. But it's also really hard for the data-driven companies because they may be able to ship the really quick thing. But at the end of the day, games are a mix of art and culture and other things. And if you want to make something that really blows up in a big way, you probably do need to have a vision that ultimately does take 18 to 24 months to make. And whichever end of that spectrum you start on, yeah. you need to find a way to get to the middle. Uh, but, but you can't really get to the point. I, I, you know, I don't allow my companies, I try not to allow my companies to spend 18 months coding before they get any sort of, you know, there's so many I agree. ways. I, I 100% agree with that. Whether you make fake ads of the game, whether you get a Roblox. Uh, exactly. Game, exactly. Whatever you it is that you make, you have to ship. I'm not saying you don't have to ship. I'm just saying that you still, 
you need, need to know where the boat is going, right? Even if you need to ship it like two months to test it out, you need to know yep. what is awesome about it in 18 or 24 months. Right. And I think those are, you need like mashing together those skill sets is like the secret to the future of the game industry. And it's really hard. Oh, I, agree. I think you mentioned it, which is a good point, which is today there's so many new ways. In the old days, you know, you build a product, it would take X period of time before you could get customer feedback. Today, LiveOps has moved from, I remember when LiveOps used to be ship and then you'd, you'd LiveOps and get customer feedback post-launch. Now that moved to beta, then it's moved to alpha, now it's moved to first playables, now it's moved to concepting. And, and you know, when, when we founded our company, you know, one of the very first things we did before we ever raised money or even did service work was we made images of our game. We were testing it on Facebook. We were going out to various channels, pulling customers in, seeing if there was signal there from real customers. Is the thesis even interesting? Does this work? And we had the, that, that signal super early. And part of our thinking was LiveOps is just moving all the way up the chain, even, even to before starting a company. Um, so I think that's true, but the world's changing such that you can, you can do iteratively in quotes, ship lots of little pieces of your game and get some of that signal throughout development. I admire the casual gaming crowds, the hyper-casual gaming crowd so much because they really pushed this angle so hard. And if you could figure out how to combine the hyper-casual gaming crew with like folks who know how to make incredible games in three to five years, like if you can figure that piece out, like that's the, that's the secret. Yeah, I want to add two things. The first thing is that I, uh, I totally agree to that uh, moment of death or that near-death experience, uh, what we call sometimes the, you know, the part in the language, the fuck it moment, when you understand that everything's going south. And the reason why it's so critical is because I see so many game companies that are starting and their KPIs are not there. And then they're like, okay, we'll make a small change and that's going to change something. And they make <laughs> another small change and that's going to change something. And, you know, I, I have the kind of the, the 50% rule, which means that I've never in my life saw all the small changes together change major KPIs more than 50%. So if your day, if your day two is 30%, then with all the small changes in the world you can make, if you're not changing something big, you know, at best it's going to get to 45, right? And that's if you're really doing all the small changes. And usually there's like an 80-20 rule on that. And, uh, and so, you know, only at that near-death near experience do you get the guts to, take big, to make big changes, right. to really make the self decision, to take out part of the game mechanic and replace it with something else, to take out something that you really thought is going to work and try something else. And that is usually the point where game companies start working when you stop being kind of in love with the first thing, that's kind of okay, and you start making big changes. So that, that's one thing. The second thing is that Travis mentioned the, the, the possibility today of putting out ads before you even start a game. And, and you know, I, I just love that. It is something we do with all, game, with all companies, just, not just with game companies. And, um, you know, there's, <laughs> I wanted to share a funny story from uh, my partner in NFX, James. They, uh, they had a game company called Wonder Hill that eventually got uh, acquired by Kabam. And um, they wanted to build a game and they didn't know what game to build. And so they decided they're going to take and started the other way around. They're going to start for all the na possible names and all the good game names were something of something. And so they had the list of all the somethings. And then they had the list of all the places in the world that they could. And they put out like 200 ads, different ads to see what people are clicking on. And they had like uh, warriors, elephants, dragons, Amazons and whatever. And then they had places like Sahara, Atlantis, Moon, Mars, and they put out all the tests. And the one that really clicked the most, got the best clicks, the, the best CTR, was one called Amazons of Atlantis. And they were about to build a game around the concept of Amazon of Atlantis until one of the engineers said, guys, you got it all wrong. People think it's something else when it's called Amazons of Atlantis. <laughs> <laughs> and so they took the number two, and number two was Dragons of Atlantis. That became a game of hundreds of millions of dollars. And they basically decided what game to build based on the naming test.
Hey folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break, but stay tuned. We'll be right back right after this message. Thanks. When the working world shifts on its axis, how do you respond? Gamers want to play more than ever, and your game needs qualified artists and animators. 80 Level RFP smooths the rough spots of recruiting and hiring qualified creative talent during difficult times and beyond. Our unique process matches curated professional artists with top companies. It's efficient and 100% online. At 80 Level, RFP means ready for production. Are you? Get started today with 80 Level RFP. That's 80.lv slash RFP. Welcome back from the commercial break, and let's get back to the discussion right now. So guys, we've kind of touched upon this issue of companies that are more creatively driven versus data driven. And Travis, you mentioned also this third category of being engineering or technology driven. And so I know, Gigi, you've got some thoughts there in terms of how companies what, what should- is, Travis, which is an engineering driven company? Give me an example. Oh man, uh, Unreal, Valve. Maybe know. MZ? Any Elon Musk company, SpaceX, Tesla, they're, they're, they're very heavily- No, no, in oh, games, who's a company where the core capability is engineering? Valve, Unreal, original founders of Unity. Um, you know, yeah, but, it, but these are not game, that's not the games part of it. That's the engine part of it. Sure, sure. But and by the way, that, that's a really important point is a lot of these companies that that are engineering-led, let's, let's use Unreal as an example, or id software with John Carmack, who I know reasonably well, you know, engineering-led companies typically innovate uh, on gameplay and on graphics from an engineering standpoint. And so, so those are culture led from those from those points, and they typically they're more rare because you, you tend not to have engineers who who throw themselves into the business world, right? They're not the guys who go out and pitch, um, but they're ultimately the people and the segment of the industry that disrupts everything else. Usually, in the business and the creative side, they're sort of on the margins, but on the engineering side, that's where you get breakouts for new game mechanics like Battle Royale. That's where you get uh, new three D rendering engines like you see with id Software. That's where you get. Unreal creates the Unreal Engine okay. right? and drives so, uh, game like format I, I, and on and on. But but the engineering side is often undersold in this industry, and it's a pillar of what makes games uh, successful and also what drives true innovation. Now, not taking anything away from companies that are creative led or business led. Uh, certainly, I sort of lean on the creative business side. So, from, from my perspective, I definitely sit there. Um, but I have a lot of respect and honor for the folks that are the engineers who actually drive these essentially software companies. And I think a lot of the friction that I see with startups oftentimes are business and creative folks who really don't understand the technology. They pretend like they do. They can't code, they're not in C++, they don't understand the tech stack, and they end up bouncing around on the technology and they typically then move away from technical innovation because it's difficult. And there's nothing wrong with that, but, but there's definitely, you can sort of almost classify these companies by who has the technical chops and, and who doesn't. I agree to that in general. I'm not sure that I agree that this is where the core innovation in the game industry comes from. I think that this is where a lot of the infrastructure and capabilities clearly are coming from. But, you know, I, I hardly see game studios that are engineering led, right? I see infrastructure companies. Some of them are also have games. Uh, but for me, at the end of the day, uh, especially these days, the engines that are around are so strong and so good that really uh, I don't expect the next, uh, you know, multi-billion dollar studio to necessarily uh, be building their own stack from scratch. 
I, you know, I, I don't even think that that's necessarily a good direction for a studio to think about. Of course about. not. And I'm not suggesting that a games company should build the engine, the back end, the cloud, the infrastructure, multiplayer systems, distribution, monetization. I mean, none of those things. But if you don't innovate technically, I do think it's a massive disadvantage. Meaning game companies that discount software engineering and innovation and tech, I think it's a big disadvantage. You know, we, we of course, we have a pretty heavily technical innovation side of, of Carbonated, but we're using Lumberdurk, right? We're not we're building it from scratch. You know, we're using, we have a deep partnership with Amazon because we believe in all of their cloud technology. That said, we are doing some things that are technically led and technically innovative, yeah. which we think is really important. I, I, yeah, um, but I, we're not building an entire stack on our own. I, 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 I understand, and I think that there, and I think that there is a bit of a disconnect here because at the end of the day, also the most casual game companies out there, the ones that are theoretically non-engineering led at all, all of them have some phenomenal engineering capabilities. Um, you know, be it on personalization or uh, optimization or automatic live ops or a bunch of other areas. This, this is all tech. This is, you know, it, it may be a combination of tech and data science more than pure technology. It may not be on the graphics side or the rendering side, uh, but none of the company, the great company that you can think of, be it uh, Platica or Moon Active or, you know, or, or Playrix, these are, it's true that they're not reinventing anything on the engine side. Uh, but they have some pretty awesome technology capabilities to do what they're doing. Yeah, I would actually really agree with that. I think the the key is like, where is your technology innovation vector? And like, how is that technology going to make you more successful in the particular category that you're in? So I actually, I do think that many, if not most game companies are engineering led one way or the other. It's just, where is that engineering kind of, where is that engineering focus? And so in the case of, many of the hyper-casual game companies or casual game companies, a lot of that is, as Juju was saying, it's like, it's in personalization. It's in like, how can you deliver and learn faster and iterate faster than anybody else in a red ocean category? I think we are talking about Travis, in which I believe in, and I just, why I get up in the morning is to figure out not just how to execute better in an existing category, which folks like Playrix are incredibly good at, and like taking those incremental steps of figuring out how to combine the blast mechanic with the next best theming and, and, and RPG mechanic, but rather how to actually push, push things forward. And if you want to push things forward in terms of a unique look, unique gameplay, something that really stands out in the marketplace, not by being the most optimized from day one, but rather by really looking different, feeling different, providing a fundamentally different experience. I don't think you can do that without having a meaningful tech innovation vector, unless you have like a crazy creative, that like I, I love Fall Guys and I love Fall Guys because there's nothing technically interesting about that game. Yeah. It, you know, it's made box standard engine, box standard everything. Just the total creative genius of taking a Japanese game show mechanic and putting players into a battle royale through it. Like that in itself, you can create just a creatively unique thing. But most other things, like in our case, obviously, we are very heavy technically and we're very like Catalyst Black, which is coming out from us. This is like two or three really core big technical innovations around, say, drop in, drop out, matchmaking, allowing you to just go straight into game with anybody at any moment in time with no friction socially. And then having these very large scale battles that you just can't today make with Unity or Unreal in that kind of, for that range of devices. So it means that for those kind of generic engines to be able to do that, it'll probably take a couple of years, which means that then we have a couple of years to hopefully be able to take what is a promising idea and do all of the things that the Playrixes and uh, companies that are very good at optimization do in order to ultimately be able to create an incredible experience. So all of these different, I think, technology investments give you a slightly different innovation vector, and slightly different way of being able to build a success, but you still need to, I think, like 
from a business execution perspective, I think Gigi was coming back to like, whichever your innovation vector is, you've got to be able to figure out how do you make the absolute most out of it? How do you ship as quickly as possible? How do you learn as quickly as possible? And how do you know your strengths and weaknesses in terms of uh, what it is that's going to keep you alive and, and ultimately make you grow and create a big success? But ultimately, I think it has to do with how like, you know, what sort of company are you building? Are you building an iterative company that takes small steps forward? Or are you trying to take a bigger bet uh, outside of what is what is there right now. And Gigi, can we unpack that a little bit? So for if you're creatively driven or data driven, how do you focus or how do you think about your business differently in each of those situations? Yeah, so I, I think for me, the, you know, the world and I've invested in more than 20 game companies over the years. And, uh, you know, some of them have been very much data driven companies. And, and I founded a few and some of them have been very much creative driven companies and uh, and both are valid. And as I said before, you can't be just one of the two these days. You've got to be both because otherwise you're not going to be successful. However, some companies tend to be a lot more based on the data than the creative. And that is, by the way, I think one of the reasons why we see uh, investors kind of flocking into the industry today a lot more than before is because it was very difficult to try and bet early on on uh, who's going to be a better creator. Right, who's who's got a better creative? That's really tough for investors to to do. It's like you know, VCs don't invest in movies, for example. Um, and for many years, people thought about games like movies. I need to find the best creator and believe in them. What people are seeing today, what investors are seeing today, is that given the high dependency on data and the ability to optimize based on data, if you get the right team, that right team can actually almost always optimize the game to the point of this game being uh, either profitable or having to kill it and move to the next thing. And um, when you look at companies like, uh, you know, like Platica that I founded or, or Moon Active or others, these companies are optimization machines. It means that there's so much data science in these companies. And by the way, I keep, you know, I keep telling my creative driven companies or, or the ones that are the most successful creative driven companies that if they had the same data science skills, they would be 10x better in what they do. Right? It's just that the DNA is so different that it's very difficult to convince them to do that mix-up. And, uh, and for me as an investor, it is, you know, why do we also invest in things that are really out there? Like, uh, you know, uh, uh, there is a, a game company we invest in called the AI Dungeon that is the, bigger, the biggest user, the, the company called Latitude. It's the biggest user of GPT-3, OpenAI's uh, latest. And it basically, it's a storytelling game where you basically write a story with the AI. And it's kind of awesome. I mean, I really recommend that everybody try it. And that's one extreme. Uh, but at the other extreme, we, you know, we invest in companies that are very, very data-driven, iterative, where you could almost claim that there's almost no game innovation, other than what Kristen said before, I'm going to mix this and that, and you know, that's going to be my initial starting point. But from that point onwards, you just continue to iterate based on the data until you get to, to the right place. And this is so much easier for, uh, for me as an investor uh, to invest in today. And I think that you know, while I, um, as a gamer, I, you know, I love, uh, I love the creative led businesses, uh, as an investor, I completely not disregard the data driven ones, uh, because I think that as investments, they sometimes make far easier and better investments, uh, a lot more predictable. And also I also think cheaper, I, like, yeah, in general, like the, with the same amount of money, typically the data driven business can have five, six, seven shots on goal. Ex exactly. Like, and, and, and I think we should in general, not not disregard the fact that when you look at how much entertainment value you're providing to people, right? It's these companies that usually provide a lot more entertainment value to, to, to people around the world than the core gaming companies. So I think there's room for both. And I think if anything, what I'm trying to tell my companies is that 
the data-driven companies must learn a bit from the playbook of the creative-driven companies because if they take more kind of innovation leaps on creative, they're going to be better. And I tell the creative-led companies that they should take a playbook, you know, a page from the playbook of the data-driven companies because even when you're creative-led, this really can make you so much so much better, even at the early stages, not just later. Uh, and it's this mixture. It's this, you know, we uh, one of the I think one of the companies that I'm, the Moon Active did this branding kind of branding of the corporate. And the one thing that stood out immediately is that it's a company of a mixture of creative and science. It's both, right? It's, it's this very unique animal that almost does not exist in any other company. No other company do you need both, right? In no other company other than games do you need both. You know, if you are a transactional business and, you know, and whatever, in, in, if you're an Uber, that's great. You don't really need creative. Yeah, you need the UX to work, but there's no creative element. If you're a content business, a creative business, then you don't really need tech. It's only the game industry that requires this very complex thing, which is why I think most of the game companies fail because they, don't, they can't create that match. So they're either too creative or, or too non-creative. And that's yeah, what makes it actually, so tough and so exciting. Yeah, I really agree with that. And I think ultimately it comes down to like this culture of deep, I mean, one, just having, having the talent that covers these areas, but then also figuring out a deep culture of respect between these areas. And it often actually coming back to the near-death moment like it's actually quite difficult to create that culture where people truly are sort of, um, I don't know how to explain it, like naked, as we Finns say in a sauna, you know, naked in front of each other in terms of just that nobody like has these great dreams of my vision is X or I want to be Y, but rather we need to succeed together. Let's, okay, you data guy, you explain to me exactly how to do this in the right way. And I will explain to you exactly me, the creative guy of the thing that I want to achieve and like to, to create that shared sense of respect between, and frankly, also between engineering to Travis's point earlier, like figuring out like, where are the limits of what can be done and what can't be done and where they're kind of how to do things effectively or whatever it might be and having that mutual respect. And that's why I think culture in game companies probably matters more than in any other kind of company in general because no one kind of, you know, the poem about the blind men and the elephant or whatever, everyone feels different part of it. It's very much, I think, making games very much like that, that, that any one person cannot see the whole picture because they can only see it from the perspective of, say, engineering or design or creative or data or whatever it might be. And the really senior folks can see more angles, but nobody can see all of them. So the trick really is to be able to figure out how do you create a culture where you can listen enough and still hold on to that vision and then have someone that relentlessly, you know, relentlessly executes and ships quickly. And these things are just hard, right? And, you know, as you just said, I think these are the, some of the hardest types of companies to create. And that's in some ways what makes it so much fun because the, the industry is moving forward and it's growing all the time. And there are all these opportunities for different angles. So, yeah, I agree completely. And I think that, you know, there's this saying that I love that in every company, you should always prefer attitude to skill. Meaning that, you know, if you've got somebody that just ticks all the boxes on skills versus somebody that maybe misses something but has the right attitude, is the person with the right attitude that's going to bring value to the company dramatically more over time. Because the one with the wrong DNA is going to be a liability, eventually it's going to slow other people around and eventually probably going to leave. I think in game companies, it's, you know, it's enhanced 10x. If you get, don't get people that match the company's DNA, just don't get them. They can, yeah. you know, they can look, they can look the best on the CV. Just don't get them because it's going to be such a drag on your company. And I have so many, so many examples like that. Coming back to the mistakes, like my biggest mistakes as a company leader has been not firing those people, not letting them go early enough. The minute that I, you know, inside, you know, you have this gut feeling this is not going to work out correctly and then you're still your brain tells you no but we can't possibly live without that person because of x y and z and then you take three months or six months or sometimes a year before you do something about it you know um and yeah don't, don't do that <laughs> i 
I was going to say the other thing I'll throw on the on the pile on the, the kind of the cultural thing, which which it, it, it depends on kind of your view on how long you want your company to be around, but is a deep uh, intellectual curiosity for for what this business is. And my favorite thing is look back on my early career. You know, I started in the, in the games industry on the Philips CDI, you know, and then I worked on the Genesis, and then I worked on PlayStation One. And if I had gotten really good and sort of settled in on any one of those things, I'd be gone by now. You know, the industry would have passed me by. And the rate of change in games is just accelerating. It's getting faster. And it's, you have to sort of also have this, this culture of intellectual curiosity because there are so many new, to Jimmy's point, on, on not just the technical side, but on the business side, on new ways of doing you know, user acquisition or new ways of dealing with funnels or new ways of uh, pretty much across the board. So having all of your team willing to investigate, learn, and being intellectual curious for us has been, we sort of knew that going in, but we really sort of instituted more strongly and it's really benefited us in a lot of ways. This industry just moves so fast on all fronts that that, that desire to learn and keep learning is, is so important. Just the guy going for hours on that, but, but a, a big deal for us. Yeah, so maybe we can now talk about like initial focus. We've raised a lot of issues like Travis, you mentioned culture, you mentioned the importance of, you know, hiring the right people. And so like with all these things where you, the initial sort of co-founder group can focus their time as you're starting out, what should be the initial focus? Or do you just have to get everything right? And maybe Travis, you, you want to speak to this with respect to the current experience you're having right now as you're starting to scale up? Yeah, I think I think for us, you know, I, I'm I'm a sort of believer in frameworks, frameworks of thinking. It's kind of something I do a lot. Um, so for us, it's, it's really making sure we have a clear uh, vision because that's ultimately the company's working against. We have a very clear thesis that we're running against. Uh, we spent a lot of time refining that. We know it's true, so we're working against that thesis. Um, but then as we work against that thesis, we want the team to be able to have the freedom to, to innovate and come up with ideas and, and do all those things. But we, we spend a lot of time putting out frameworks and sort of like, okay, well, here are the pillars of the games. Here's how we want to operate. Uh, these are frameworks that, this, that matters to our company in our unique company and our unique take on the games industry. Um, and so once those frameworks are in place, it helps sort of guide, guide the team in terms of what sort of in and out of the bucket. And, you know, using a sort of silly example for, for those folks who aren't in the games industry, it would be a little bit like if you're at Tesla and you're sort of going after electric cars and somebody goes, I've got a great idea for a gas engine. You're like, that's a great idea, but it's not on mission. It's not within these frameworks. So that's just a quick note. Uh, don't take it personally. It's just not in our framework. That, that's a quick note. It's easy to make those decisions. But within certain frameworks, Having the freedom for the team to come up with those ideas is, is super valuable. Um, so that's that's sort of how we run a lot of parts of our company is keeping that thesis and vision super clear and then building frameworks in which the team can operate and, and putting those frameworks in. We do it with the team as a collective. We talk about what those frameworks are, everyone agrees upon them, we put them in place, and then people can operate within them real, relatively quickly. Uh, any other thoughts, Gigi or Christian? Yeah, I, I think that's a great way to put it, the, the way Travis put it. I think that in any, in any company, but mostly in the games company, having a clear strategy that you're pursuing. You know, the, the way I think about managing any startup company is that you're starting with uh, you're starting with setting up a strategy, which is kind of your vector. Then you make sure that you have the right team for that to run on that vector. And then you just let them run. And then you keep getting back to the starting point and say, am I on the right direction? Do I need to change it? Do I have the best team for that? And, you know, and it used to be, <laughs> in the past, it used to be like you do it in an annual cycle. Like you ask yourself and then it turned to be quarterly and now it's probably like weekly, right? Every week you wake up and you ask yourself, are we in the right direction? Do I have the right team? And, you know, the way it works, it seems that you want to be accelerating even more. But the reality is that as long as you have that vector that everybody knows, then it's really critical that everybody knows it. Because many times you'd be shocked how many times in even a small company, 10 people, 12 people, 
you ask the mass engineer, what are we trying to achieve? And the answer is, I don't know, I need to write that piece of code. And you're like, how does that piece of code relate to the vision? How does that connect to where we're trying to get to? And, and they don't know. And when they don't know, uh, and many times I, you know, I would sit with the CEO and I'll call somebody and I'll ask a question. And when you don't know, then you don't know what to focus on because then you, know, you, can, you can write this function with that much code or you can write it with that much code if you don't understand what's really important right now. And it can take you a day or it can take you two weeks. And if you don't know what we're trying to achieve, what we're trying to test, what we're trying to prove, what we're trying to create right now, and how does that tie into the big vision, then there's just no way in the world you can be fast. And not, not having that strategy communicated and that story communicated to the people all day long, where everybody can know, especially in a games company where there's so many moving parts, it's just going to slow you down and, and that's going to kill you. So getting that right, I think, is really critical for the beginning of the company. Yeah, so I'd, I'd agree with that. And I think one good device that I'd recommend overall in getting there is to be like hyper transparent on the really big existential goals for the company. Like, let's say you raised your $3 million seed or whatever it is that you've raised. And you now know that the clock is ticking. Like, you know, you have, you have a, I'm making this up. You have 18 months, two years, whatever it is. Like, you've got to make a success out of this. There is like, and frankly, you have to convince someone else. If you, if you aren't already making a lot of money, you have to have convinced somebody else six months before you run out of cash that they should be investing more money. And at that moment in time, you better have shown, if you don't already have a success, you better have shown like a really straightforward line of sight path to a success. And if you work backwards from there, that means, you know, you need to have at least, I don't know, four shots on goal to that point. And if you work backwards from there, like you literally have three months to prove out this first thing or whatever it is. And it's a really hard limit. You've got to do it. So challenge the team to figure out how to do it and, and um, kind of work backwards and have a transparent set of here's the vision, but we also have these constraints. And if this was easy, everybody would be doing it. So now we need to figure out how do we fit this big vision into these small constraints in chunks, like literally how do we do it? And I would like my biggest mistakes overall has been spending insufficient time planning or insufficient time aligning, communicating, understanding, and actually brainstorming around how to hit some of these difficult goals quickly because people want to normally just go in and start making stuff and a lot of the time unless you really scope it out well the thing that you think takes three months to make actually takes nine months to make so like really scoping it out understanding like, okay what are the options can we be even more creative of how to try this thing out so that we truly can get some data back in three months like solving that and not leaving the room until you have a solve that you all believe in and then say go as opposed to say yeah we'll try to figure this out let's see what we can do yeah, yeah I'll work definitely fallen victim to that myself plenty of times and, and I do think it's a great reminder um, and a lot of what you know I think for the audience who's watching a lot of us that we're talking about these are our scars we've earned by making these mistakes over time and I've certainly made that mistake myself so yeah it's, it's really good advice to do that it's, they're almost like social OKRs you know they're like as a small company you can't build a whole OKR system so you almost want to do it sort of socially yeah and, and, and a big part of it I think is getting into a, a paranoid culture very early on meaning that you should assume the worst if you're not seeing signs that it's the best. And I just had with, uh, with one of my companies, I'm not, not gonna say which one, uh, but they put out a first uh, playable and uh, the numbers are not good. They're not, they're not horrible, they're not the worst I've seen, but they're not good. And, uh, and I, I sat down with the founder and the founder said, yeah, they're not good, we're gonna improve them. And I, I, you know, I told them, you know, that, that is completely the wrong attitude. You should be panicking. You're now, you know, you've now eaten six months into your 18 months of cash. And what you put out is not good. And you should not assume that there's going to be one feature or one function or one change that's going to make it good. And you're sitting here and telling me that everything's going to be okay. I don't want to hear that everything's going to be okay. 
I want to hear that you're panicking because if you're not panicking, it means that you're going to take your time. And if you're going to take your time, it means that your team's going to take your, their time. And it means that you're going to, you're going to you know, spend another six months on small iterations. So why don't we, you know, and I told them, why don't we decide? And I, I think I got him to the point of understanding. Why don't we decide that we have a month of trying the biggest idea you have of changing something that's going to really make the numbers better. And if in a month time, we don't see that these iterative changes are creating something meaningful, then we're making a big change. We're maybe killing the game. We're maybe changing something really meaningful in it. And if you're just sitting there calm, then you're not going to be successful. You need to be panicking from day zero. As we said before, you need to pivot just after you raise the money. That needs to be your, your, your thinking. You need to know that it's more likely to not work than work. And so don't assume that you're going to be, you know, uh, there is, um, my, my father once told me when I was a kid, I asked him about winning graffles or lotteries. And he said, that happens to other people, son. That's not, that's not happening to our family. And, you know, we, we're, we need to work hard. And so, you know, as a founder, you should not assume that you're going to be the one person that puts out the game and only makes small tweaks and it just explodes. That always happens to other people. That never happens to you. And so plan for that. Don't plan for being the lucky one. And it seems like all three of you have talked about culture in some way. And I know like a deeper conversation on culture could take an entire session. But if you guys had some initial advice about how to initially focus or how an early stage company should focus on culture or establish it, maybe you guys have some thoughts or advice in terms of that. Or Travis, what are you doing right now? Yeah, I mean, I think I think uh, in some ways cultures really. I mentioned this earlier, but I think culture really is is led sort of top down from the leadership. It's it's sort of almost inherently just just is that way. I think you have to be very. Uh, it has to be managed and curated, and it, it is it is deeply deeply important. Um, but I do think it is it is it is sort of led from from the leadership down, and it's hard to change that. I mean, as much as you could say, oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna change the culture. The leadership drives the culture. They represent it every day and everything that they do and how they operate, who they talk to, and, and their emotions and and their work ethic and all those things. Uh, it really does come from the leadership down. Um, and so I think if, if you're active in both who you're hiring and shaping the culture, uh, I do think it matters really really early on. It's really hard to change later on. And I, you know, whether I was at Jamdat or at EA or at Zynga, you can see the culture carries through the entire company over years and years and years. Um, and that in those early sort of cultures that get set or those early processes or, or way of behaving uh, get set. And I always joke that they solidify like concrete uh, and it doesn't take them long to solidify like that. And so if you're going to change culture or manage culture, you basically oftentimes surprisingly have to kind of go in with the jackhammer and break up that concrete. Um, it, it solidifies quickly. Um, so setting it early on, having awareness of what it is early on and then managing it early on is the best way to, to, to build it successfully. Trying to change it mid-flight is really surprisingly difficult because typically it's the leadership who said it and then they're trying to change it, but they're trying to change who they are as people. Uh, and that I think is, is, is challenging. It's not impossible, um, but it is, it is uh, generally set pretty early on by the leadership. I guess my experience is that culture gets formed by key decisions and actions. And in lots of ways, I think that until you've shipped something, you don't really have a culture because you haven't been forced to make decisions. Like, culture isn't there until you're forced to choose between a and b if you say let's see you know we'll choose later you haven't really decided who you are if that makes sense so that's why my biggest advice is always just to ship like find a way to ship something no matter how small because that forces you to make those trade-off decisions that reveals to you who you are and ultimately that determines who you are like to to gigi's point like like how aggressive are you 
How short are your timelines? How do you hold yourselves accountable to the shipping and to doing the things you're going to do? That all comes out in the wash when you actually ship a product and when you're forced to make all of those decisions. So the faster you're doing that, the faster you're telling yourself and you're creating this mirror to yourself as to who you really are. Uh, and the faster also you can identify if the mix of people that you have doesn't have the right cultural mix that isn't like it's consistent with the type of company, the way that you want to win in the future. And you can, because I don't think there's really, unfortunately, a much better way to change culture. Like you, you're basically forced to change people in order to change culture once it sets. I really like the concrete analogy. It's, it really does set. So you almost have to change senior people at that moment in time. And, and it's super painful. Don't recommend it. And the faster you ship, the faster you understand who you are. And in particular, that uh, if you can engineer a near-death moment for the team somehow, that also is a really great breaker of kind of concrete, if you like, and helps you, helps you set a, a, a better, more consistent culture with winning over time. Yeah, so I, I agree with both. And uh, without being too self-promoting, uh, there is a, a phenomenal piece that was written by my two partners, James and Pete, that is called the, the NFX uh, Company Culture Manual. And what we tried to do is that we together founded more than 10 companies and we tried to kind of crystallize what works for us um, in creating company cultures. And what we, what we saw is that this is, uh, while when we were younger, we, you know, the process was kind of, you know, there's a culture because we're like that. Uh, and I agree that this is the core of it. And if you're, you know, you can't create a culture that is very different from what you are, you know, the, your, your, your employees are only going to be as good as you are, right? If you're not striving to be good at something, if you don't have this as a value, you can't expect them to have that as, as a core value themselves. Uh, but we, we have come up with this framework that where we think that companies should, from the very get-go, uh, spend some time on their culture. And the way we look at it, you're basically, you need to find your company values. Uh, and there's a whole process of how you find these company values. And, and the company values at the beginning is, is a lot, what are the values of the founders? Uh, but, you, you know, being that we're different people, people have different values. And so you need to crystallize it. You need to talk about it. And people need to adjust themselves so that you'll have a coherent thing. Many times we see that the different values between the different team members uh, or the different founders are creating gaps, just like in parenting, right? When, when two parents have different values, the kids find this gap in the middle. And that's where things go wrong. And this is exactly the same thing. When founders have different values, if you don't talk about it, the employees are going to fall in these cracks. So you need to, first of all, decide what are your values. Then you need to ship them. You literally need to think about them as a product that you ship them to your employees. You ship them to the existing ones. You ship them to the new ones. And there is a whole process of how you do that. You communicate them. Uh, you put them in your job posting. Uh, you put them in your meetings and conference rooms, in your website, in your social sites. They're part of your interview questions. Right, your your emails, your your company-wide emails, include them so that everybody knows that they're important. They're sometimes they're part of the signatures. You mentioned them the whole hands meeting. You need to constantly repeat them again and again and again, and then you need to start programming your culture because culture at the end of the day is decisions and actions, but it's rituals, and it's the rituals that you put in place that are basically determining what's the culture of your company. And so you need to create rituals that are basically helping this culture. Uh, you know, spread and get deeper and deeper and maintained in your company. And we hold this entire thing around what are the rituals, what's the storytelling, how you do this. And there's tons of tricks that, that we can talk about, uh, but we don't have the time for it, I think. And then the most important thing maybe is how you put these cultures into your review processes of employees and into your hiring. Because at the end of the day, what you really need to do, once you decided what they are and you ship them and you ritualize them, the two last things you need to do is first thing is that you need to test all your existing employees to see that they fit this culture. 
And if you see that they don't fit it, you try to adjust them. And as Christian said, if you can't, that requires replacing people. There's no chance. And then to avoid future mistakes, you really need to embed these values into your hiring process so that every employee that joins is both tested based on this, but also knows that these are the values that the company is all about so that they really, really not ever in any doubt what's really the company's culture. And, and there's a whole process around it. And then once you do that, you basically uh, measure and iterate around it because you know cultures are not set in stone. And as the company evolves, the values could change. What could be right for one stage may be different for another stage. And some of the core stays, but some of the other values could change. And so you measure and iterate around it and constantly go on embedding them into your processes, into your rituals, into your hiring. Uh, and we think that uh, companies that we see doing that early on are concretely are better companies than what than ones that just let it happen. And then one day when they get ahead of HR, they start doing it in retrospect and trying to find the values of the common denominator. And then suddenly you find out that half your people are not part of your values. So this is really something that even as an early stage company, worthwhile doing despite this seeming like a distraction. That That's our view of it. Got it. Maybe I can ask one other question that uh, selfishly I'm trying to think through right now in terms of like, so you start off, you have your co-founder group, and then as you start to just begin that process of scaling, I think we're trying to understand how we focus our time in terms of being an individual contributor, then as a manager, and then as a leader. And I think all of us will have different capabilities in each of those areas. But do you guys have any thoughts in terms of how we should be focusing our time or how we should be thinking about managing each of those specific roles? Uh, I can give you the hard answer. Okay. So I, I think that one of the biggest mistakes that I've seen companies as they reach the scaling stage is that the founders uh, are not transparent with each other and are not open to each other about each other's capabilities and the future of their position in the company. And, and the truth is that it is very unlikely that the people that started the company are going to be the best managers in their respective fields with time. That's just not necessarily the case. So, you know, many times if the company is successful, the CEO stays the CEO, although even that changes. Uh, but it could very well be that the head of marketing is not necessarily going to be the best head of marketing going forward because as an individual contributor or the head of engineering maybe is great for one stage, but it's not great for the next stage or and you know, I, I think that one of the one of the topics that people speak the least about is uh, is the fact that uh, what kills many companies are founder relationships, and founder relationships are tough. They're tough because it's everybody's baby, and you know, having a baby with uh, with your partner is tough enough, and having a, a, a software baby with with a few people, especially if you're three or four, that's even tougher. You know, try that at home, and um, and the reality is that not being transparent about it and not thinking about it up front and not basically touching base on it all the time, which is very tough. It's very tough on the relationship side. It's a huge mistake. And, and what I've, you know, in some of the companies I've founded over the years, I think one of the best thing we've done is that we kept on talking about it. And when, not always it worked, but where we could, and we found out that somebody is not going to be the manager. So they could be the leader of something, but not necessarily the manager of something. What we did, we, we created a culture that accepted it and a structure that allowed that person to stay part of the top management without necessarily being the manager of many people. And, right. and while this sounds very awkward and very non by the book, if you don't do that, you're gonna run into huge problems later on 
because you're going to get with a founder who is whatever head of product that is not really going to be great at managing 20 product people, right? So he can be maybe the chief creative of the company and if it's a games company. Uh, but that does not mean that he needs to run all the, uh, all the game designers of every studio. And so by trying to find a way and by speaking about it openly, it may not always work. But I think in the places it doesn't work, it would have been worse without talking about it. And in the places that it does work, it creates magic because it allows the team to stay together despite this limitation that you're not aware of when you got going. Uh, any other thoughts, Christian or Travis? Or should we move on to our last question? We can. I, I just thought there was a lot of wisdom there. I think it's... Yeah, it's for sure. Very profound. <laughs> yeah, no, no. But it, it is true. And it's such a personal journey through and through. And in particular, when you're the chief exec, it is unfortunately on you. And it is your personal soul responsibility to take care of these issues because they do ultimately metastasize and become problematic throughout the entire organization if you don't do it. And again, just looking back for myself, um, these are areas where I've made huge mistakes in the past and it really comes back to bite you in a really profound way. And you kind of put the company at risk if you don't deal with them and they're hard conversations to have. So I think practicing how to have these hard conversations is important. And then to be clear, like management training or leadership training, all of that stuff, it may polish somebody and make them like five or 10% better, you know, but they'll never take a person who's fundamentally a brilliant individual contributor and a brilliant person who should be in some R&D box somewhere to make them into a leader, a, a sort of a large leader that is capable yeah. of scaling. And just, it just, just, like, just like changing small features, never yeah. going to change everything. <laughs> yeah, no, no, but it, it's so true. So you, like the idea of, hey, you know, let me put these guys on management training. It's just not, you know, it's, it's not there. So anyway, it's a horrible, lonely responsibility. But this is why you need folks on your board, like Gigi or anybody, like folks who you can as a CEO reach out to and go, hey, listen, I, I'm really unsure about this. Do you have any advice or thoughts as to how to, you know, how to deal with this particular thing? Because they are incredibly difficult things, in particular when you're sitting at home in front of your Zoom camera, you know, <laughs> trying to figure out how the shit do I take care of this correctly? Yeah, the only piece I'll add there, which I mentioned in the early days for us at Carmody was, was, like I said, our founders, we had never worked together and that was super important for us to kind of figure that out. But I, I agree with, with, with both in that it, it's, it's very, very important. It's also one of the reasons why, you know, previous teams who work together typically get you know, get get uh, funding relatively easily because they've all worked together, they've all done ship product together, and that that's incredibly valuable. Um, and so, I think for us, we, as I said, we started out, we did some work for hire for for the first you know year or two uh, to to really gel as a team, make sure we we could solve those problems because um, we really wanted this to work. And, and we went in eyes wide open. We said, look, we've never actually worked together as a team. Let's do that before we raise money. I uh, can't say that recommend that for everybody, uh, but for us, it was it was a really good good thing to do. So by the time that we did raise, we had we had worked together, we had shipped things together, we had had a lot of pain together, uh, we knew how to work together in in through the good and the bad before we ever raised. So great. So last question. Now, all three of you have had incredible experience on both ends of the spectrum with respect to like early stage and starting a company, as well as working at the larger companies. And one of the things that guys like Jeff Bezos talk about often are how do you avoid becoming that day two company, like having the, the speed and effectiveness and the lack of ceremony and uh, various things at the early stage that kind of starts to crystallize and, and become more prevalent where you become less efficient as a bigger company. And so I was re really wondering if you guys could speak to that in terms of, you know, is that just a necessary evil of a larger company or are there ways of being able to maintain some of that speed and 
innovation and, and so forth from the early stage to the late stage. And Gigi, maybe you can start seeing us to yeah. how, see you shaking your uh, head. <laughs> so, so first of all, clearly, I think you can stay fast, uh, especially when you're uh, the, you know, when you're the grown startup. So, you know, when you're, when you're Amazon, maybe it's tough, although they clearly continue innovating. But uh, when you're, you know, when you're the kind of companies that we're talking about, companies that are growing from, you know, 10 people to 100 people to 500 to 1,000, um, but you're still not the 100,000 person company, there's clearly no need to start being slowed down. The other way around, you're going to start being slow, slow, that's going to kill your company. And in a way, I think the most amazing companies are those that stay startup fast at around a thousand people. These are the ones that are, these are the ones I don't want to compete against, right? The companies that are still, and when you look at it, what, what really characterizes these companies is a very, it's very tough uh, to handle contradiction inside the company DNA, which is constantly striving to reach the next peak, which in games could mean, you know, could mean revenues or DAO or whatever, but constantly striving to reach the next peak and believing you're going to get there but coupled with crazy, crazy paranoid fear that if you're not going to move fast enough, somebody's going to eat your lunch. And this is this combination that you see in almost every successful game company CEO. But you also see in, in Mark Zuckerberg, by the way, in Facebook, it's this combination of aiming to take over the world, but at the same time fearing that somebody's going to eat your lunch and having this, you know, both of these sides, that's critical for maintaining your speed and for maintaining your agility. That's one thing. I think that in, in game companies, more than any other company, the biggest change that I see is the company that manage to, you know, and it's a, it's a huge challenge on the CEO, is the company that managed from becoming a great single studio company to a company that is running multiple studios successfully. And that is so difficult, but it's also part of the secret of, of maintaining this agility because I think that the studio mentality where each studio is becoming a startup and each studio is sort of undergoing all the stages that a startup is undergoing, you know, from the initial love of the product to, you know, get, getting to with the back to the wall and having to iterate and knowing that the parent company is not going to give them money if they don't really provide the KPIs and everybody's working all night to do it. I think that is basically with a healthy competition between studios, there's a tool that, that many non-game companies don't have. And I think that when I look at the most successful game companies, it's this ability of the, of the management team to basically make the transition from a single studio to multiple studios and maintain that agility and maintain that healthy competition. It's what's critical. And of course, this is very complex because uh, you keep struggling between having completely separate resources so that you can really have single startups in each one of them, in which case you have zero knowledge transfer and you have zero efficiency and you're just you know, theoretically wasting a lot of money and you're wasting a lot of knowledge, which is even worse, versus taking everything to shared resources, in which case you're basically making each one of these studios you know, slow and dependent on others and having the excuse that, hey, they didn't deliver what they said and they didn't set up our environments and the marketing is not doing their job well. And so this is, this is a core capability that allows game companies uh, to really become better. And, and last thing on that is that that also includes, I think, having different kind of processes for different stages of, of studios. So what you should allow your early stage studio is clearly not what you allow in terms of breaking things on your game that's making a billion dollar a year, right? You know, in one area, you can move fast and break things and, and you can really iterate crazily. Here you've got, you know, you've got 20 million customers a month. You know, it's having this different, you know, general good DNA with that desire to win coupled with being paranoid. 
but then with different processes and different rules for each one of the studios that I've seen work the most to not get into that complacency zone. I actually have nothing to add to that. I, thought, <laughs> I will say like, and it's interesting, there are many, I mean, and I don't think it's rocket science these days in that if you look at like, it's interesting, like Stillfront's motto, we do not centralize, for example, is interesting. In a similar way, Zynga, I think, has pursued their M&A strategy incredibly successfully. And I think they've also said, look, we're not going to mess with studio. Let's let them do their thing uh, across the board. I do think it's a hard step, but I do think that setting up, it's an advantage that game companies have, even how Supercell built out from the start was that from that desperate desire to have independence of teams and not have anything centralized. I do think that that is pretty much the way to do it. I don't know that I know of any really successful game company that has been able to scale in any other way than scaling horizontally this way, literally entirely different instances of, of the of the whole thing. And then obviously as a CEO, you're going to be there kept up all night going, I'm losing money and I'm losing knowledge. How come this studio can't learn from this studio and trying to create these get togethers and these events of people sharing their stuff and you know whatnot and being able to borrow from each other. And you can do all of that stuff. But I just think there's so many, many more, much more evidence that independent studios uh, appear to be working better broadly. Although, of course, these big tech stacks, as they become more and more important, be they in UA or experimentation or insights or data or game engine or whatever, there's always a temptation of trying to somehow standardize. But yeah, nothing, nothing to add. Yeah, there's one thing I'll throw in there, which I totally agree. And I think one of the interesting things that I sort of experienced in the shift in, in, in my career when I was at Jamdat and EA, uh, where that wasn't generally the case, uh, but it changed dramatically when Freemium and LiveOps showed up. And, and, the, and the reason why was games went from being these sort of individual things to being these services that could last for years and years and years. And when that shift happened, they shifted from being these sort of studios that would make something and move on to the next thing to potentially being a studio that was, was essentially its own business working on this product for, for years and years, potentially even more than you know, years, decades now. We have games that are alive for over 10 years and more. Um, and I think that was the big shift that, that shifted it from these sort of like individual studios were almost like service organizations that would build things for the publishers or for, for other entities. And now they're really little companies. Um, and, and I think the, the folks out there that are doing it the best, as, as Christian mentioned, with, with Zynga and their acquisition strategies and others, is they do treat them like little individual companies and they and they let them run individually. Um, I can give you lots of examples of other big companies that are doing that where they would like to use their own tech, uh, but ultimately let these studios use whatever engines or whatever technology they think is right as their own almost little startup. Um, and I think the other way that you manage these, these small studios or these external studios really well um, is give them the kind of constraints that startups have. And those constraints really drive decision-making, speed, innovation, grabbing the latest tools to help efficiency or, or keep, keep them at the quality edge. Um, but I, I totally agree. I think, I think almost all games now that are particularly live ops and freemium games that can run for years uh, are all like little companies. All right. Well, I think that was it. I'm sorry we ran over a little bit, but uh, I personally found this conversation to be super fascinating. If you are it's interested... Because, it's because, okay. you found, because you found such amazing people to interview. <laughs> For, for sure, for sure. And uh, I would highly recommend to the audience, Gigi's firm, NFX, a lot of great resources, blog posts, things like that. And I'll also put in links to uh, Christian and Travis if you guys want to try and get in touch with them. But thank you very much for your time, gentlemen. And I definitely appreciate all of the insights and wisdom today. Thanks, guys. Right, thanks, guys. So Awesome what you do. We love it. <laughs> Bye, guys. <laughs>